and again, has been stated, we welcome you to this online service. And now, as we continue our worship, uh, we're going to be focusing on hearing from God's Word and uh, bowing our hearts towards the truth of His Word. And in order to do that, we need help, and I need help. And so uh, I would invite you to, wherever you are, to just to, to, to pause and to, to pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that even under uh, less than ideal conditions, we still get to worship you together uh, in spirit with our brothers and sisters. We pray, Father, that wherever we are, that you would cause our hearts and our minds to uh, have a laser-like focus on your word, that we would not only draw strength from it, but we'd be corrected and uh, we would be directed. So we pray for your help, Lord God, that you would uh, incline our hearts to hear your truth, that you would cause our eyes to see what we cannot see in ourselves, and that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to apply this to our, our, our very lives and our homes and our walk in this community. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Where we are in the Gospel of John, uh, the, the story that we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, if we were to apply our calendar to uh, these days, then uh, it would occur approximately around the end of March. Uh, Passover is about a a week away. And many of you will recall that Passover is a very significant feast and celebration in the Jewish uh, calendar of worship. It was an ongoing feast from the time of God's rescue of, of Israel from Egypt and uh, where God interceded for his people and brought them out of Egypt and rescued them from the bondage of uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The night that God saved Israel, he, he brought a final judgment on the land and the angel of death was going to pass over uh, the nation of, of Egypt and the firstborn of every family and, would be killed and God in his mercy provided for uh, his people a way of of escape they were to kill a, a lamb they were to eat it they were to put the blood on the door and the lintel and God said when I pass over when I see the blood I will pass over you and so Israel always remembered the salvation from Egypt, but also the salvation from God's wrath. And uh, now as we enter into the story that John has been recording for us in his gospel, we will soon come upon a time when not a 
physical lamb in that sense, but the, the, the holy, eternal lamb of God, who John the Baptist said takes away the sin of the world, he would be slain on behalf of God's people and his blood would be a protection against the wrath of God. And so, based on our calendar, uh, March 29th, 19, uh, AD 33, uh, Jesus himself would become that lamb. As I said in a previous message, this was going to be a Passover like none other. The wheels were already in motion for the uh, death of Christ. The plot to kill him was already uh, uh, happening. And now Jesus is going to orchestrate his entrance into Jerusalem. This would be the place where he suffers and he dies. As Christ entered into Jerusalem, um, there was some confusion as to what was going on here. Uh, both the disciples and the crowd that was involved weren't really sure of what Jesus was doing. Um, even modern readers of the story that we call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, aren't always sure exactly uh, what was going on here? Why was Jesus doing this? Ironically, as we read the story, we're going to learn that the Pharisees were closer to the truth than many other observers. Uh, it's going to be somewhat of a paradox that these men that were plotting to kill Jesus actually uh, had an understanding of this entrance into Jerusalem in a way that Others did not. My, my main point that I see in this story and that I want to unpack for you is that the procession of Jesus into Jerusalem on a donkey was clearly a prophetic act. But it was an act to counter the Jewish desires for a nationalistic type Messiah. By that I mean that Israel was looking for a, a human ruler to save them from uh, human physical problems. Real problems indeed, but human problems. They were looking for this nationalistic leader. But Jesus came in to counter that claim and establish the truth that he was king over all nations that he was king indeed over the whole world and I believe the story uh, teaches that quite significantly I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the story as I read it from the Gospel of John chapter 12 verses 12 to 19 the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. The Gospel of John, chapter 12, 
12 to 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. And again, we trust that the Lord will help us as we uh, unpack the truths here and apply them to our lives. All the gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote about this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. I want to explain something just by using a ordinary uh, uh, story that could be taken from our lives. Imagine in our town if there was a accident at an intersection and uh, several people were around that accident and witnessed it take place. And the police officers came to interview witnesses. It would be rather unusual if the policeman would, uh, in talking to the witnesses, hear exactly the same story, exactly the same words, as if one person was reciting or copying another person. The police officer would be suspicious. He would think that perhaps there's been collusion. The police officer might even think there's some deception going on. What the police officer would expect to find is that generally uh, what people saw was, uh, was the same account. But each perspective would add a different emphasis. And that's exactly what we find when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When they discuss something like uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, you would not expect them to quote each other word for word. You would expect slight differences. When John writes about this, he doesn't seem to spend a lot of time discussing 
the actual event itself. He covers that very quickly. Other gospel writers go into different detail, and they'll emphasize different parts of this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. If you access uh, my sermon transcript on our church website, when it's posted there, you'll find that I've done some work in that area that I'm not going to talk about this morning, but it gives you an opportunity. I've done an analysis of all the different gospel writers and what they chose to focus on. But John is the one that we're, <clears throat> we're, we're considering this morning. And we find that John's record of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is totally harmonious with the others, except unique in the sense that he tends to focus on the reaction of people more than the event itself. When John uh, explains what happened on that day, he, he shows us that there was, first of all, a convergence of two different crowds that day. There was a huge crowd from Jerusalem coming out of the city to meet Jesus. Now, other uh, expositors have speculated on the potential size of that crowd. Josephus, the Jewish historian, is recorded as saying that at one Passover feast, the crowd exceeded two and a half million people. So I think we can safely say that this group of people coming out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus was a rather substantial crowd. And John tells us that the reason they came out, because they had heard about Lazarus and Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and they were intrigued, they were curious. There was also a second group of people, though, and they were the ones that were actually accompanying Jesus. Remember, Jesus had been in Bethany, and this crowd stayed with him as he moved towards Jerusalem. This is a crowd that perhaps many of them had actually believed into Jesus. They had been convinced that he is the Christ, and they had accepted him as their Savior and put their trust in him. These two crowds are going to converge just out the city, outside the city walls at a place called the Mount of Olives. And that too is a very significant place in the story of Jesus Christ. It is here where Jesus will look over the city of Jerusalem in a little while and, and he will weep for them because he knows what the end is. It's also here that Jesus will ascend after his resurrection and go back to the Father. So this crowd all converges outside the city of Jerusalem at this point. And they break into song. The gospel writers tell us that uh, they were singing a part of Psalm 118, which is part of a whole series of psalms called the Hallel. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 form this body of music. 
and the Jewish worshipers as they would travel and ascend to Jerusalem to worship would be singing these psalms together. We learned that in this particular case, they were singing a psalm and the authors record it as from Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26. And if we go back to that psalm, uh, this is what they would be singing. They would, they would be singing, Save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The crowds were gathered together singing at least a portion of this uh, Hallel group of psalms. And you'll notice that what was very much on their minds was that they would be saved, that they would be rescued. And they were offering a blessing, not in a general way, but a very specific way. They, they were blessing Jesus. They were blessing him who comes. And they were anticipating that, in fact, Jesus was the promised Messiah who would save them. And they were crying out to him, save us, save us, and we bless you, the coming Messiah. But John, as do the other writers, add an interpretive component to this story. As the crowd was singing the Hallel, the gospel writers, including John, bring out a point of interpretation. They teach us that what is actually going on here is a fulfillment of prophecy. And they cite, briefly, Zechariah 9.9. 9. Now, one little piece of advice that I would always like to give you is that when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, sometimes the citations are used as a clue. They're a, they're a marker for us so that we would go back and look at the original source. In this case, I would want you to go back to Zechariah chapter 9 and look exactly at what these inspired authors were pointing to for us. Uh, they were wanting us to consider. In other words, it's like they're coming off the pages of, of Scripture and saying, What's going on here is a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. And they cite a part of it. So let's go back to Zechariah chapter 9. I invite you to turn in your Bibles there to Zechariah 9. And particularly, I want to look at verses 9 and 10, because that is the complete uh, prophecy as it unfolds. So that's Zechariah 9. 9 and 10. In Zechariah 9, we re read this. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the, fo the, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, in context, the New Testament gospel writers are pointing us back to Zechariah and saying, this is how you should interpret this story. In the whole context of Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, in general, what we see is the promise of a very gentle king destined to rule, not just Israel, but rule the nations, even to the ends of of the world. In Zechariah 9:10 there's a quotation even from Psalm 72 verse 8 which says that this Messiah will rule from sea to sea. As Canadians we should be very familiar with this psalm, Psalm 72, from sea to sea. But in context with Zechariah it means the whole world. I say all this so that you can hopefully readily see that in Christ's mind, as he was making this entrance, he was proclaiming far more than a nationalistic leader of Israel. He was proclaiming himself far more than what Israel had hoped for. In fact, there seems to be a bit of a playoff between the two quotations from Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. There's a, a bit of a playoff so that we can properly understand it. The crowd picks the verse Psalm 118 because they're anticipating a nationalistic Messiah to come and to save them. But the gospel writers counter that with a citation that describes far more than a nationalistic leader, but in fact describes the global reign of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, John adds insights into the reaction of several groups of people. The first group of people that he adds uh, some clarity for us on is himself and the disciples. He says in verse 16 of John 12, he says his disciples, and he's including himself there, again, remember, he's writing this some 50 years after the fact. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and he had 
and had been done to him. You see, John is teaching us that even the disciples, in fact, some of these truths that were being proclaimed and lived out at the time of Christ didn't make a lot of sense to his disciples until after he had died, until after he was buried and rose again, until after he ascended and was glorified and the Holy Spirit was given. It didn't make sense to them. Jesus was going into Jerusalem to proclaim his global dominion and his worldwide reign over all the nations. And his disciples didn't really grasp that until Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came and Christ was glorified and the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. It was only then that it made sense what Jesus was doing on this day that we call Palm Sunday. John also notes the reaction of the Pharisees. And as I said in my introduction, it, they were closer to the truth than, than uh, they even understood themselves. This is another situation in John's gospel where someone uh, says something or does something and they really didn't grasp the full extent of what they were saying or doing. Unwittingly, these Pharisees made a statement that totally lined up with what Jesus was doing here. In verse 19, you'll read, So the Pharisees said one to another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now surely they meant that as a hyperbole, an overstatement. They didn't know what they were saying. These were a group of men that were just totally frustrated and exasperated with Jesus. It seemed to them that everybody was turning to him. But the point that John is making here is to point us to the fact that this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem was in fact to proclaim that Jesus is king over the whole world. The crowd had hoped that he would be king over Israel, but these Pharisees, they saw something unwittingly unbeknownst to them that was truer than true, that Jesus was in fact coming in as the reigning king and ruler of the whole earth. And so in somewhat of a hyperbolic fashion, they said, look, the whole world is turning to him. Beloved, let me restate what I think is the main point of John's uh, lesson for us here. Jesus' procession into Jerusalem on a donkey was a prophetic act to establish the truth that he was king over all nations. He was king indeed 
over the whole world. And of course, after Jesus was glorified, we learned that the whole world was impacted by this gospel. And John is going to give us a hint of this in the very next section that we, we study together. He's going to show us that even in Jerusalem that day, the Greeks were coming and looking for, G for Jesus. These non-Jewish people were looking for Jesus. So there's a, a little hint to corroborate what exactly is going on here. Jesus was coming in announcing his global reign over all nations from sea to sea over all the earth. Upon Christ's ascension, we read that in the Bible what his father said to him. Psalm 2 records this. We read in Psalm 2, I will tell you a decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That quote from Psalm 2, 7 and 8 is cited again in the book of Hebrews, interpreting it for us and teaching us that this is what God said to his son upon his glorification. He said, today I have begotten you as my son. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations. And in fact, those of us who know the truth of the gospel know that that is exactly what took place. Jesus rode into Jerusalem proclaiming him to be king. He was a king who would conquer people's hearts through sacrificing himself for them as the Passover lamb. He's a king that would rise from the dead and ascend back and assume his rightful place as king of kings and lord of lords. And our savior today is indeed king of the world, king of the nations. All the nations are his inheritance. Isaac Watts, that famed hymn writer, said it this way. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom spreads or spread from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Beloved, this is one of the main threads of truth that runs through the Bible. Indeed, from Genesis through to Revelation, even in Abraham, God promised that all nations of the world would be blessed. All nations of the world would experience the blessing of this particular seed of Abraham, who we learn through Paul's letter to the Galatians, is in fact Jesus Christ, who would be king. Making people aware of this is an important aspect to how you and I share the gospel. 
when Jesus was on earth and he went around teaching the gospel, Mark records that this is what Jesus did. Jesus went around saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1.15 You see, in, the, in terms of Jesus' thinking, a major aspect, a major component to the gospel message is the fact that Jesus Christ is established as king of the world. And therefore, it's your mission and my mission. It ought to be our mission as a church to announce to others that our Lord reigns, that he reigns over the earth. The New Testament, of course, picks this up in Romans chapter 10 and verse 15. We read, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now again, if we go back to the original citation, we get a fuller sense of what the author wants us to know. We go back to Isaiah 52, verse 7, where that citation is taken from. We read the whole verse, and this is what it says. Let me read it for you. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. See, beloved, the eternal reign of Jesus Christ is part of the gospel message that the world needs to hear. We have a responsibility to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to announce to people the good news that sinners can receive freely by faith the righteousness of God. We need to announce the good news that sinners can be forgiven of all their sin. We need to announce the good news that sinners can be empowered and indwelt by the Holy Spirit who will enable them to live holy lives, lives pleasing to God. We need to announce the good news that sinners are, are objects, redeemed sinners are objects of Christ's ongoing intercession today. He is praying for us today. But in this passage, dear Christian friend, we are also told that we need to announce the good news that sinners can share in Christ's kingdom. He is king over all nations, and his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. His kingdom is a kingdom of joy. His kingdom is a kingdom of sinlessness. His kingdom is a kingdom of justice. His kingdom is a kingdom of unhindered, unfettered fellowship with God. And people need to hear this. 
they need to hear that the good news is they can be part of a kingdom where there is holy and righteous and joyous reign of Christ. So as we apply this message, this message of the uh, entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, where he was proclaiming himself to be king of the nations, we too must pick up this same message, and we need to proclaim this to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors. We need to announce to them the good news. Our God reigns. And in closing, we also need to live we need to live as if our God reigns. Does our God reign in your heart this morning? Does our God reign in your marriage this morning? In your home? In your workplace? In your business? In your school? You see, our lives tend to make plausible the idea that God reigns. When people look at us and see how we live our life, and if they can understand that even imperf imperfectly, even in the state we're in now, that our heart's ambition is to have Christ rule over our lives, then when we tell them that Jesus reigns over the nations, that will make sense to them. When our lives match our words, it will make sense to them. Beloved, I want to pray this morning for myself and for you as Christians. I want to pray that as Jesus went into Jerusalem and, and announced the truth that he is king over the nations, then we too would pick up that same mantle and tell others that our God reigns not only by our words, but by our lives. So I invite you as we close to pray with me. How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news. Our God reigns. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that your Son is seated at your right hand and that he is ruling today over all the nations. Thank you that he is king. Thank you that all the nations have been given to him as an inheritance and we're part of that gift. We pray, Father, that indeed the message of the gospel would go into all the world and all the nations would hear that Jesus reigns and all nations would be invited to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. Lord, I pray that we would be able to do our part, whether it's in our family, whether it's in our neighborhood and our work, that we would be absolutely filled with the tremendous joy that Jesus Christ reigns. And Lord, if there's anyone this morning listening to this message and Jesus Christ is not known to them, nor is he living in them, 
nor is he reigning over them. I pray that they would hear the good news that Christ reigns and that they would seek you to be part of your kingdom. They would be born of the Spirit and enter into your kingdom and experience your peace, your joy, your justice, your goodness, and your love. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.